When we were live, Meredith actually read the whole of Exodus chapter 5 before the sermon, and it might be helpful for you to do the same, to read it for yourself. I'm not going to do that for the sake of time, but it could be some helpful context before listening to the sermon that you're about to hear. We all have had situations where something funny happens to us, and we, as well as the people around us, we're just dying laughing about it, but then we try and tell that experience to someone else, and we get about halfway through when we realize that this just isn't translating, that the person is definitely not going to find it as funny as we did, simply because they weren't there in the moment, didn't have the full perspective that contributed to what was funny in the first place. I guess you just had to be there. One of the hard things about reading the Bible well are the you-just-had-to-be-there moments. Maybe not in terms of something being funny, <laughs> although Old Testament scholars will tell you that the book of Esther, for one, is intended to be absolutely hilarious. Like, really funny, in the style of like an English pantomime or something like that. But we're not talking about Esther today. Today, we are getting to the much more serious story that begins in chapter 5 of Exodus, and that leads into the whole story of the plagues. Funny is hmm, not how you'd describe it, I don't think. But the same you-just-had-to-be-there dynamic is important for us to recognize nonetheless, because there are some key pieces of context, some key perspectives and points of view that we need to try as best we can to put ourselves back in time into if we're going to read this story well. Because when we don't, things can really go sideways. When the story of the Exodus has been read, for example, from the perspective of the powerful, the affluent, the empire, it has become a horrible story, one of triumphalism and abuse, revenge and violence. When it is read, on the other hand, from the perspective of cultural monotheism, where it's just assumed that there is one and only one, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God with a capital G, it's a confusing story of that good God using their overwhelming power to bully and abuse the people of Egypt, all because their king won't obey. Why doesn't God just free the people without all the horror? Our son, Riley, is certainly not the first person who, upon hearing this story from that perspective, wonders, hold on, in what sense is this all first sons murdering God good, exactly? We're going to return again and again over the coming weeks to two crucial, I think, attempts at altering our perspective, trying to read this story as much as we can as if we'd been there. The first one is that this is a story told not by the powerful, but by the powerless, the oppressed, the exiled, the enslaved. It's a story that begins with Israel having been slaves for 400 years in a land not their own, being referred to as Hebrews, which in the ancient cultural setting was more or less a slur for a foreign or other ethnic group that was lower class, manual labor types. You can probably think of equivalent slurs in our culture today. God is repeatedly referred to in this story as the God of the Hebrews. And if you were, again, to replace Hebrews with one of those slurs you just thought of, but which I am not going to say out loud, you might get a better sense of how striking that phrase really is, the God of the Hebrews. So that's our first perspective shift. This is a story about, written by, told by, read by the Hebrews, the oppressed, the hopeless and powerless. And the more we can get into that frame of mind, however imperfectly, the better we will read the story. The second perspective shift is the one we're going to focus on a bit more today. And that's the perspective of a people who live in a culturally polytheistic world. One where it is assumed, not that there's one God, but that there are many. And in fact, that the person who has enslaved them, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, is seen as one of those gods. 
And the God Yahweh, who this Moses guy comes and says is going to set them free, that God is at best a distant memory from centuries past. Perhaps there are some who have kept the worship of Yahweh alive, although we really have very little evidence of that in the story, and plenty of evidence to, in, in what comes later that indicates that the people's religious practices are far more Egyptian than they are what we might call Jewish or monotheistic, which would make sense when you've been slaves in Egypt for centuries. In other words, and this is crucial for our understanding of the story to come, the Hebrews don't, in any meaningful sense, know God at the beginning of this story. Even if they've heard of God, they don't know who God is. They don't know what God is like. They might know the promises God made to their ancestors, although, (laughs) look around, how are those promises going right now? At this point in the story, the people don't know Yahweh. They don't trust God. They don't really have any reason to trust God, which means the story that's to come, the plagues, they are about something bigger than God forcing a stubborn Pharaoh to obey. That really isn't what the story is about at all. This story is God's introduction to the people. It is God establishing who they are and that they can be trusted. Now, it doesn't come through very well in English translations because English translations often go for a variety of language because it sounds better. But in these verses, the words for work, serve, worship, they show up over and over again. And it's actually the same word in Hebrew. If you were to go back and read chapter 5 again and note how many times serve, work, servant, worship, how many times those show up, you'll see what I mean. That repetition shows us the theme, the through line, the, the central question of this story. Who will the Hebrews serve? Will they serve Pharaoh or will they serve Yahweh? This is a contest for the allegiance of the watching Hebrew people between a God they don't know, who says they will deliver the people, and a God they very much do know, who has exerted his power over them in very tangible, crushing ways for century, centuries, and who has no intention of letting his servants go. And when put like that, it doesn't really sound like much of a fair fight, does it? How can God convince the people that their allegiance should lie with Yahweh, instead of Pharaoh, that they should serve Yahweh instead of Pharaoh. The contest begins from the very first words out of the mouths of Moses and Aaron when they go to Pharaoh in the beginning of chapter 5. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is the way that an official decree from a superior king to a subordinate king would begin. It is a command meant to be unquestioningly obeyed. It's a statement of power over and authority over Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responds exactly how you'd expect a king who believes himself to be a god in his own right would. Who is this Yahweh? I don't know any Yahweh. It's a refusal on Pharaoh's part to acknowledge the legitimacy of the command and of the authority. And in fact, later, Pharaoh reverses things. In verse 10, it says, he says, instead of, oh, thus says Yahweh. No, no. Thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh's immediate response is to show the Israelites exactly who's boss around here. Exactly who has power over them and who is truly in control. Oh, you want to pretend like there's some greater power whom you owe allegiance to? Let me show you as clearly as I can who has control over your lives. This Yahweh, they're going to bring you freedom and life. I'm going to make your life even harder. I'm going to show you who your very life depends on because apparently you've forgotten. Make bricks without straw. Work harder. 
How's that Yahweh look to you now? Tell me again who has power of life and death over you. The contest has begun. Whom will they trust? Meredith and I have made the point often in the past that this is actually the same question for us today. Whom will we trust to protect and provide for us? God or one of the many other forces that promise happiness, security, safety, the good life? Pharaoh is setting himself up as a god, a rival to Yahweh, an idol, in other words. And idols are always competing for our allegiance. And one of the things I think is so interesting about this chapter is the way the contest for the Israelites' allegiance goes and how closely it mirrors the ways that idols still try to convince us to follow and trust them instead of following and trusting God. I see four things that Pharaoh does that are mirrored by idols today, and I want to highlight them for us as a way of helping us think through what the temptation of idols is like, what forms it takes in our everyday lives. First, Pharaoh threatens. You want to give allegiance to Yahweh? Okay. Make the same amount of bricks, but now you have to gather straw too. I'll make your life worse and worse until you give me the allegiance I demand. It is Pharaoh establishing the control he has over the people in tangible ways, showing them who they should fear, who has the ability to make their lives better or worse. It's like how one of the most common idols of our day or any day, money, will threaten us as well. If you don't serve me, if you don't orient your life around pursuing me, look what might happen. Look at the horrors of poverty. There's no life there. You need to protect me, hoard me, hold on to me, because if you don't, who knows what might happen. Look at how having or not having money will make your life better or worse. Second, and kind of in the opposite direction, Pharaoh shows the appeal of trusting him by giving the Israelites the picture of what life would be like, could be like, if they would just go along. Now, this is kind of looking back behind the events of this chapter, but chapter 5 mentions the Hebrew overseers that Pharaoh has put over the people. These are the Hebrew people who are collaborating with Egypt. In return, they're given power and authority, probably an extra ration of food or two, more security and freedom. They are the ones Pharaoh can lift up and say, look, life could be so much easier if you'd just go along. See how well it goes for the people who give in and follow me? Why not be like them? Money appeals to us in similar ways all the time through advertisements and posts on Instagram or whichever social media platform you like. Look how great the life is of these people who have given themselves over to wealth and the pursuit of wealth. Don't they look happy? Fulfilled? Look at all the experiences they can have, the things they can buy. Don't you want to be like them? Family is another common idol in our culture. And I think it whispers something similar. Look how happy and secure and fulfilled all these people are who put their family at the center of their lives. Don't you want to have close relationships like that? Wouldn't you give up anything to get that? So Pharaoh threatens. He appeals. And third, Pharaoh blames and shames the Hebrews. They're lazy, he accuses on multiple occasions in this story. I'm not the problem here. I'm not the one making your lives miserable. If you weren't so lazy, you'd be able to make bricks just fine, straw or no. And this Yahweh you all of a sudden have started talking about, you're just trying to get a break because you're lazy. Work harder instead of trying to get out of all the work. This is all your fault, not mine. It's like the pervasive cultural message that those who don't have money are, well, lazy. 
it's their own fault. If they worked harder, if they made wiser decisions, if they stopped buying $7 lattes, well, then they'd be just fine. It's not that the system of capitalism, in which some people get fabulously wealthy, but most people have to work far more than 40 hours a week just to make enough to afford rent and food for the family, that's not the problem. They're the problem. They're lazy. It's their own fault. Or how every single damn parenting book out there, other than Woven by Meredith Miller, of course, coming August 22nd, pre-order now, but every other parenting book wants to make it clear that if you just follow these five clear steps, then you'll have the family of your dreams. I mean, have you seen the social media posts of the author with her beautiful children laughing together? It's that easy, which, which means if you don't have that sort of family, well, whose fault is that? Get it together. Pharaoh threatens, he appeals, he blames and shames, and finally, Pharaoh deflects and distracts. He sets the Israelites against each other and ultimately against Yahweh. They complain to Pharaoh, but when that doesn't work, they turn on Moses and Aaron. The infighting begins. And then Moses turns to God and accuses Yahweh of not coming through, even though God, just in the last chapter, was pretty clear in the burning bush story that things were not going to be quick, easy, and painless in this process. But no, Pharaoh isn't the problem. Moses is. Pharaoh isn't the problem. Yahweh is. The finger pointing and blaming go in every direction except where, to any rational observer, it should. So again, the system by which money accumulates at the top isn't the problem. That billionaire or that CEO, they're the problem. It's not that money isn't a trustworthy idol. It's that this person is standing in my way or that person and their greed is undermining me. As I was working on this sermon, I realized another idol that does all four of these things in our culture, threaten, appeal, blame and shame, distract and deflect, the church. There are churches that want control and obedience out of people in much the same way as Pharaoh. I'm told there's a documentary about something quite close to this out right now that everyone's talking about on the internet, but which I just do not care to watch myself. But churches threaten. They threaten the more immediate pain of lives going poorly or of being cast out of the community. They threaten the ultimate pain of hell if people don't go along with what the church wants or says you ought to be. Churches hold up the appeal of saints, the very holy and compliant people who exemplify what the church says. And look how great things are going for them. Look at this neatly choreographed, snazzily edited video in which a person's life turned around from being terrible to amazing when they started attending this church. Wow. Churches are excellent at blaming and shaming. It's your own fault. If you just obeyed better, prayed more, believed harder, then everything would be okay. And churches deflect and distract. The real problem isn't the controlling, misogynistic, power-worshipping, abusive structures of the church. The real problem is the culture outside that's against us, or the other churches that disagree with us, or the troublemakers in our midst who are selfishly stirring up dissent among the people. Most idols are not bad things in and of themselves. Money is an absolute necessity. Family can be a source of great joy. The church is central to God's plans for the world. But when we start trusting them, instead of or alongside of God, we put those good things in positions they were never supposed to be in. And the message that scripture wants to bring to us over and over again is that when we put those things, money, family, power, the church, whatever else, in places where they aren't supposed to be, they will inevitably fail us. But the competition it rages on all around us. The idols threatening and appealing, blaming and distracting, all to get us to choose them 
over God. And as followers of Jesus, we need to consistently take a look at the idols, the ones that appeal to us, and reassess things. Where have we started to buy into their threats and appeals? Where do we need to take them down a few notches so that God can take the rightful place in our hearts? We, like the Israelites, have a choice. Unlike the Israelites, we have the gift of knowing our God a bit better. Having seen their kindness, compassion, and grace, we have seen the evidence that this God can be trusted. So since that is who Yahweh is, we can be honest with God as we reaffirm our trust in them. As a community, when we were live, we first picked an idol that had the potential to draw us in, and we all have some. As we've said before, an idol is anything that we look to to protect and provide for us. It's how we would complete the sentence, no matter what happens, it'll all be okay because blank, because of the money in my bank account, because I have a family who love me, because I do the right things that my church tells me to, because I'm smart and competent and hardworking. What's one of the idols that tempts you? I think recognizing that there are idols that call to us, inviting us to trust them instead of or alongside of God, that's an important step in being able to work bit by bit on putting our trust more and more in Jesus and less and less in any other thing. So what is an idol that tempts you? And then there's a series of questions that you can spend some time reflecting on. But what threats does that idol bring? What does it whisper to you about the horrors that might happen if you don't give in and trust it? What appeals does it make? How does it try to convince you of how great things could be if you follow it? How does it blame and shame? How does it try to convince you that the ways in which your life falls short of perfection are actually your own fault? And if only you got your act together, it'd all be better. And then how does it distract and deflect? Trying to show you that the problem isn't that it isn't a trustworthy place to look to for protection and provision, but rather the problem is actually something or someone else. So I'd invite you to spend some time reflecting on those things and what the idols are that tempt you and in what ways they go about doing so. Yahweh, God of the whole earth, Jesus, our God in flesh, we confess that you are true, real, and good, worthy of our full trust and devotion. We confess that we are at times drawn to other things, wondering if they might better protect or provide for us. We confess that we want your help in aligning our desire to trust you alone with our actual lives practicing trusting you alone. Meet us in this honest place. Lead us toward you in love. Amen.